Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. On a snowy Tuesday in New York last week, when all of the city was shut down, expecting one of the bigger blizzards of the year, David Norman and I got together via Skype to discuss the results for the London Impressionist and Modern Sales. It's nearly an hour-long discussion, but as usual, David goes into great detail and offers some extraordinary insights into how the auction market works, and in particular, how the modern market is driven forward. David Norman, you're back from London. How did things go? Ah, it was uh, extremely well. The art market is not only resilient, it uh, is actually quite strong. It was a very logical follow-up from the November New York sales with lots of bidding, very high uh, selling rates. And I would say one thing that I found even more uh, noteworthy this round was that on so many of the top lots, uh, it wasn't just the last two bidders making the prices. Uh, usually the field stops at about 60, 70% of the final price the works makes. But as I was sitting in the auctions, I kept seeing the third and fourth bidders trying to jump back into the, to the fray. So there was more bidding support than usual to some of these very big results. It would be worthwhile, I think, to just go down some of the top lots across both houses and talk about who the bidders were. were. I mean, the, this was a sale. There were a couple of big, obvious lots, but there were not necessarily the kinds of um, easily recognizable trophy pieces from any of these uh, artists, whether from Picasso or Modigliani, you know, Gauguin, there were some great works of art, but none that you would have uh, be able to sort of uh, mark as a, as a real sort of um, signal work by the artists that would have drawn people from all over. And yet the sales seem to draw bidders from all over uh, and create, you know, very few works that sold um, at the low end or under the estimates. The the bulk of the top lots are all within or above the estimate range. I mean, I suppose the top lot, uh, the the Klimt um, landscape, was a very healthy price, though pretty much the price they were um, looking for with the guarantee as a backup and all, but it looked like there was a fair amount of competition, both from Europe and surprisingly from Asia. Yeah, well, I would agree with all that. And particularly going back to your first comment, there were, you know, many of the big names, you know, as you said, Klimt, Gauguin, Picasso, Medigliani, Magritte, but not necessarily the uh, the textbook examples, you know, the Picasso tomato plant. Well, a still life isn't the typically sought after, fought for subject matter. Uh, and yet it really did uh, surprisingly well. The Digliani portrait, that was really quite off speed, the portrait of the uh, man, the poet. It had failed to sell at Christie's a few years back at a at a much higher estimate. Uh, and as you said, the Klimt was a 
gorgeous painting, but one, when you speak of Klimt, would more often uh, bring to mind wonderful portraits of women. If you're going to think about landscapes, then it would be those beautiful sea uh, views on the Adderzee, uh, where he would be during the uh, summers. This was a very abstract picture. Uh, there wasn't so much a subject within the field to identify, and typically the the newer buyers we would view as you know looking for more recognized subjects and examples. The one thing I found very interesting about the Klimt amongst many things was how much it reminded me of uh, a Monet water lily in terms of the square format, the size, the overall decorative sensibility and not decorative in a pejorative term, but you know, just in the sense of overall design. And it basically made what a, a good solid average Monet water lily uh, would make. And just like with the Monet, um, an Asian was the underbidder. Patty Wong, uh, Sotheby's powerful head of Asia based in Hong Kong, was the underbidder as she was on many other lots. I'd also add uh, there was a young lady named uh, Jasmine Chen from the uh, Sotheby's offices in Hong Kong who was uh, another bidder. So you actually saw two Asian bidders uh, driving up the price before Andrea Youngman, the Viennese representative, bought the piece. Whether it was also for the Klimt Foundation, I'm not so sure. She bought the uh, portrait of the woman with the hat that did so well for the Klimt Foundation, but I may be wrong, but I have some suspicion that she might have been on behalf of uh, someone else for the big piece. So go back to that um, connection to the Monet water lilies. Uh, is that just the the almost abstract quality creates a universal appeal so you can have a an Asian bidder versus someone from the Gulf states versus a um, you know North American all of whom have sort of different types of interest in the work but converging uh, on it well I agree I I, I I hate to over attribute and paint with too broad a brush different aesthetic sensibilities from different regions of the world, and everyone is, has their motivations, but like a Monet water lily, like uh, a lot of paintings um, that the Asian, Chinese, Japanese bidders have fought for over the years, there is a certain aesthetic, a certain pattern all over quality uh, maybe a two-dimensional aspect to the pictures that does have some kinship uh, with Asian art, historical Japanese woodblock prints, Chinese porcelains, and decorative screens. And, and the Impressionist artists and the early modernists, amongst the many sources they drew from, particularly the Impressionists, there was a real response to, you know, what was then the import of Oriental art, Chinese art, chinoiserie, all types of things that maybe speak to a shared aesthetic. And that's why on water lilies and climps like this, you know, we saw Asian bidders, perhaps predominantly Chinese bidders, as the most forceful uh, constituency driving up the price. 
Well, that that makes a lot of sense, and I, you know, you can also almost see the the big Richter abstracts in the same context. Uh, you know, those all over patterns, colors, and so forth. I, I really don't know whether the Chinese are particularly um, interested in that kind of work, but certainly everyone else is interested in that kind of work as almost a universal uh, a language. Um, you also mentioned the the Gauguin at some point. Uh, it, it was that something that there was a strong Asian bidding on. Uh, both Gauguins, actually, there was the uh, small little picture in the Sotheby's sale, and you know, according to my observations, it was a uh, Asian buyer who got that uh, particular piece. In that instance, the bidding was kind of slow, and there were only two bidders the whole way. Um, that piece had appeared at auction before. Uh, a few years ago, it made about $5 million. So the, uh, the painting basically doubled its price. Um, but I wouldn't have called the Little Sotheby's one the object of a lot of strong competition. And I think it might have you know, certainly been something relating to the uh, scale. In 2010, it made five million and it made about $10.5 million this work today. The bidding on the Christie's uh, larger landscape, you know, which has also been of such intrigue to people because of the, uh, the Russian collector selling it. But um, with regard to that, it was really spirited bidding. It, it had a very slow start. And then sort of once the first one or two bidders finally came in around the low estimate, uh, it, it really took off. Uh, this was one of these instances where people kept trying to get back into the bidding. It really didn't just narrow down to the last two bidders for 30, 40 percent of the final price. People kept popping back in. My notes show telephone bidders there dropping out and then all of a sudden two million pound later, jumping back in. But uh, in that instance, Rebecca Way, their, their representative, bought it, you know, presumably on behalf of an Asian client. Um, and when you, see, when you see bidding like that, does it say to you that there are bidders who are sort of, um, I'm not even saying playing cat and mouse, but are just sort of trying to get a better sense of the field and not wasting their energy? Or is it a real change of heart that, hey, if other people think it's worth this much, maybe I shouldn't be letting it get past me? Uh, you know, I, I think like everything, it's perhaps both. The piece, a few of these pieces started off really slowly, some of the bigger works. And sitting there in the audience, a lot of people were kind of wondering, you could tell looking at each other's faces, looking around the room to see who's gonna bid on the phone banks. Very little bidding in the room as usual. Uh, you could see people were sort of hanging back, waiting to see some kind of confirmation, affirmation from other bidders. And on this Gauguin, it, it did, if my memory serves, start off a little slow, but then, as I said, it, it really took off. There was a lot of back and forth bidding. The thing, same thing happened with the uh, Klimt at Sotheby's. The same thing happened with the uh, Picasso tomato plant at Sotheby's and uh, the other late 1969 Chagall. Uh, and there seemed to be people really more aggressively pursuing things than being strategic on the Gauguin and some of them. It looked like the auctioneer 
typically would go back and forth between two bidders because it's hard to organize, you know, neatly alternating bids between everyone who tries. And it felt to me like there were some frustrated bidders on the other end of the lines who kept trying to get back into it. So clearly once the bidders do see a lot of activity, then they they really seemed unrestrained and eager to well, get their bids in. Well, it also, it, it still seems like a market, except in some very rare cases where we saw some jump bids. And I, I think I can't now can't remember whether that was in the contemporary week uh, or not. But for the most part, it is a, a, a market that seems almost like an endless standoff. Lots of chopped bids, lots of people, you know, trying to just get one sliver above the competition, you know, wanting to win, but not wanting to pay a penny more than is necessary to, to win still seems to be uh, a sort of an active, um, uh, you know, state of mind for a lot of the bidders, just judging from the way we see things slow down uh, at, at the top. You're you're right about that. Also, there were you know as I said, there were the one or two occasions like with uh, Clint Gauguin and some others where even when people tried to cut the bidding, there was another bidder who jumped in. You know, so the auctioneer didn't really have to deal with that. They had to more feel the bids. But there were also a lot of times where you know I could see like on my friend Helena Newman's face a charmingly pained reaction to people trying to you know, put in the most infinitesimal <laughs> counterbids, you know, in that tough spot any of those auctioneers are in to, you know, it's hard to reject somebody who's willing to put some money down, but then it, it really does risk frustrating and angering the other bidder and backfiring. But yeah, when given the chance, the bidders are trying to control things. And, and you're right, there was a lot of cut bidding when you know, people weren't necessarily voraciously chasing something. So, uh, but but the but that's usually what you see when you know it's a tough market, uh, uh, and instead we're seeing that in what by the overall numbers looks like a quite a strong one. You know, the numbers were up 50, 60% from uh, the previous year. They almost were at the 2014 uh, uh, peak. You know, I, I did some numbers on the sale, something like a third of the lot sold above the high estimate. I mean, across the whole uh, day and evening sales. I mean, that, that's a pretty strong market, but the, the buyers still have a mentality uh, of, you know, I'll pay what I have to uh, and, uh, you know, to want to avoid paying any more than is absolutely necessary. Yeah. Well, I think on a lot of the top most desired lots, they were prepared to pay what they uh, they have to. Um, but again, returning to that very cut bids when it was a little painfully slow. Now, here's an observation. I don't know if I'm... Uh, you know, on or off base with it. It felt to me like at the Sotheby's sale, there was a little more bidding by the American representatives and a little bit more often than not, they were the ones who were looking for cut bids. I very rarely saw, you know, the Asian representatives of either house trying to cut bids or some of the other European representatives. So, it felt to me like there was a little bit more of that going on at Sotheby's. And if I could say that maybe the American bidders were a little more 
you know, pushing the people on the telephone to do that. Uh, you know, I, I'd have to go back and uh, kind of examine that again. But I, I actually wonder if the slightly larger makeup of American-based uh, Sotheby's reps bidding in their sale than Christie's, uh, maybe it's a little bit characteristic of that. Uh, those bidders. well, and in both cases, they're they're playing the currency. Uh, in all of this, so the, there's a bit of a, a currency advantage, right. but but it certainly doesn't. You know, again, it's, some of it's just the nature of the work. Uh, it doesn't seem like the kind of paintings to um, pay any price right. uh, uh, for. Uh, speaking of which, you, the the Picasso, the uh, which was the third most valuable lot, the you know uh, tomato plant still life from late during the war which is kind of an odd period. You don't think of there being much Picasso uh, work from uh, uh, you know, World War II that's particularly sort of sought after and all, but that seemed to really uh, get people excited. Is it just something about the novelty of the image? Uh, uh, certainly it didn't seem like it was something that Asian buyers uh, had much interest in, it being rather kind of a doer, you know, uh, uh, ration-driven kind of uh, uh, imagery. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And uh, again, on the bidding on that one, all my notes really uh, showed largely uh, the American and London-based reps bidding on it. I think I you know, noticed uh, people like Amy Capalazzo and Ben Dollar and some of the representatives from the uh, Sotheby's London office bidding. And uh, now... You're right. It's a very particular subject matter that speaks to, you know, a dark period, but of which the catalog notes and essays always want to return and emphasize the hopeful aspect of the reddening tomatoes. Uh, and and it really was, I think, uh, acceptable to view this as a sort of imagery of defiance. This particular series, though, Works from it have done well in the past. I remember there was another tomato plant way, way back in 2006. I think it was a uh, Christie cell. It was even, even a little more geometric in its arrangement. And it made just over $13 million at the time. Um, so, you know, thinking back 10, 11 years, something that made about 13 then is probably proportionate with appreciation and inflation to the 20 this made now. So cutting it to a short, I think this particular series of still lifes might be a little bit of an anomaly when you're thinking about the market. There was a tomato plant in the Whitney sale we had back in uh, 2004 that made $7 million. Again, though, it's sort of a, a higher price than the usual still life. So, uh, the short answer so, to your question is this this particular type has done well, but it's not the it, it's the painting version of an owl. Yes, yes, exactly. So uh, for a second, let's go back back to um the Gauguin, the smaller one, the the girl with the mangoes. Uh because you talked about it, it doubled in value from sale to sale, yet it it did not perform terribly well against the estimates. I mean, it made over the low, low estimate, and it was certainly you know perfectly acceptable. But the estimate range itself suggested that there were some expectations that it would sell uh, uh, better than that. Uh, is is that just 
you know, the consigner or is that, uh, that, that these kinds of works, which you were once closer to the center of value, uh, in the, you know, of high value in the art market are maybe migrating to be more outliers? Well, let me begin by sort of reporting on how everyone was feeling prior to the sale. I heard a lot both within Sotheby's that they expected there to be an awful lot of bidders. And I think they were sincerely advising clients who they were discussing uh, the picture with uh, to be prepared to go high. You know, if you were a visitor there to the sales rooms, uh, you really got a sense of confidence. And when you talk to other professionals uh, and dealers on the streets, then everybody acknowledged it as uh, a real gem. And all of us professionals thought, you know, even though it's really so small, uh, people are going to recognize quality and pay for it. Um, so what happened, you know, to uh, go in the face of all our professional predictions? Uh, you know, I think a couple of things. I think one can't underestimate something as simple as the small size of the picture. You know, it, it isn't as gorgeous as it is. You couldn't call it a trophy. Um, you know, a gem is a, is a gem, but it's not necessarily a, uh, you know, masterpiece hanging on the wall. Uh, one thing that was a bit of a revelation when all of us arrived at the galleries was that Sotheby's had cleaned it um, after the catalog came out. And it was absolutely brilliant. But the image remained rather dark in the catalog. So, you know, in my past, I felt people did respond to catalog images. They often bought things at very high levels without even seeing them live. So is that a factor? Possibly, but I, I think less so. And uh, conversely, all of the professionals uh, and some of the uh major art dealers and I meant collectors uh, weren't overly thrilled with the Klimt. <laughs> you know, there was a lot of talk. I think even uh, the London dealer in Austrian work, Richard Nagy said, you know, it wasn't quite the most, you know, thrilling and typical picture of the Klimt, um, but it was large. It had scale, very high prices for Klimt had recently been reported. And as he said, you know, where are you going to get another? So each picture in its own way went against a little bit of the uh, professional opinion. Um, and then whereas returning to the Christie's Gauguin, that one made a little bit more than people were anticipating. You know, they put more faith in the gem-like quality of the small Sotheby's one and less in the broader Christie's piece. But, you know, the scale did attract more people. Do you, do you think the the advanced uh, publicity surrounding those uh, was it five or seven uh, uh, lots had any effect on the valuation of them? As a buyer, do you care what the uh, consigner paid for them? Uh, do you care that it's uh, uh, you know involved in in this kind of crazy story, or is it you know you separated it out as this Gauguin is my chance to get a, a reasonably sized Gauguin that's a you know really looks like a Gauguin has that kind of uh, Im imagery, and I'll pay whatever the next guy bidding to me makes me pay. Uh, I I would say the latter. You know, I mean certainly. 
Publicity, I don't think, really makes the case. Uh, I think a lot of times the auction people, me included, would speak a great deal about provenance and historic exhibitions and relationships to other pictures, and I don't think it usually had much of an impact on the uh, prospective bidders. I think with regard to marketing, something like taking a picture like that to Hong Kong or wherever they would take it to make it available to be viewed, that element of marketing is... Uh, is pretty critical. Um, but the rest, the legend, the lore of things, you know, certainly the tomato plant for all the heavy publicity, you know, and all the, you know, symbolism, you know, that was uh, attendant to it in their descriptions, it didn't draw the out of the expected um, group of bidders. You know, from the people who were bidding as the representatives, I didn't pick up or catch anybody you know, who I thought they hooked, you know, with the uh, with the story. Well, especially given what you just said about it being a known series, a valued series, it would really be the people who have been thinking about uh, uh, would be in the market for it uh, being drawn in rather than bringing new people into that uh, market. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in terms of new people being brought in. I, I sort of hazard this guess in the November sales, and I think I'll, 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 t I'll go for it again, you know, until we see uh, reporting, and maybe there have been when the auction house has talked about percentages of new bidders. You know, I surmise in a lot of cases, the majority, uh, these were familiar bidders, you know, who've been in the market a long time. If we saw some new faces on the staff bidding, they were taking over sort of old clients from many of us who had, uh, many of us who had cleared out. Um, you, they were training new specialists to, to do the phone work, right? You know, sometimes both at Sotheby's and Christie's, I could watch a rep and how they were bidding, and I'd say to myself, oh, yeah, I remember when he had me do that. So, <laughs> you know, I'm not infallible, but, you know, you, you sort of recognize certain quirks in people's uh Bidding they said in the old days that um, a telegraph operator could identify the person clacking out uh, Morse code on the other end by their so-called hand. Oh, so I suppose, so I suppose you could one could do the same with uh, the quirks of bidding. Yeah, everything leaves a uh, a signature trace exactly. So. Uh, Let's go back to Picasso for a second, because there was that late Picasso that did reasonably well, certainly towards the, the high end of its estimate uh, uh, range. Um, and, and then right next to it, even more surprising was this sort of black and white uh, 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 work, almost like a almost like a line drawing more, you know, uh, uh, more than a painting. Uh, and they sort of round out the top, you know, handful of lots, uh, you know, uh, in both sales, but also by Picasso, uh, that seemed to dominate. Yes, I mean Picasso really did. Now, of course, he's a magic name like Monet or Warhol, you know, that always attracts attention. But there have been sales where things have waxed and waned, and you know, just like you said to start, you know, these weren't. Most of them weren't necessarily near the. Uh, you know, the absolute sort of star lot power. Uh, but certain trends continue, and late Picasso is certainly one. And 
late meaning after the 1960s. These are words when I started my career, we're in the six figures, you know, while, you know, Marie Therese's and Dora Mars were already in the tens of millions. They've kind of closed the gap a little bit because I think it continues to perhaps be relative to the rest of his career, somewhat of an undervalued segment of his market. But uh, that one did really well. And I, I would partially, if not to a large degree, attribute it to uh, uh, its redness. You know, when I started, you know, back in the 80s, I remember people like David Nash always saying to me, if it has red in it, you know, it sells. If it's an all red Chagall, it'll sell better. You know, it's just a it's just a color that is definitely drawn uh, people. And this had a very firm composition and the sexuality, the women's genitals, whereas sometimes they can be a little too much for, for new bidders or foreign buyers. It was such a complex composition with so many color elements. It really wasn't something you'd, you'd imagine anybody would have... Uh, been too to. prudish and reacted to, you know, so many of the works in both sales were on their second or third appearances uh, at auction. And, you know, it's always very interesting. I took note of the uh, price changes as I did with the Gauguin and many others. Um, I remember having this back in 2007 uh, when it made $8 million uh, all in. So. I think with the buyer's premium in U.S. dollars, this came close to about 17 million. So in a lot of instances, I think I'm pointing out, you know, from the 2007-2010 time, um, the pictures have come back and basically doubled um, their prices. Well, that's uh, fascinating because uh, that was a peak moment, not only in the market, but especially in the modern uh, and impressionist mo market, right? I mean, we've we've talked about these values lagging contemporary, and that may be more uh, in the aggregate sales values as opposed to the individual w works, but but doubling over this period um, is is pretty impressive. No, it is. But and you look within any of these sales just as you would in any category. And you, you come up with innumerable subsets, you know, so, you know, the German art did very well uh, in the sales. And, you know, that would also be a very big advancement from where they were, you know, uh, 2010 and in the years prior. But you, you, you mean, in addition to the Klimt, the uh, Kokoschka, the, um, uh, the, there's a Kirchner that did uh, 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 quite well. I mean, not ex you know, uh, nicely and all. It's a, a 5.4 million pounds uh, a picture and all. But there were there were works sprinkled through uh, uh, from that sort of German modern period, right? Right. That that did well, and you know, conversely, uh, many of the impressionist works did not. You know, I mean, the more average impressionist works. You know, maybe Monet accepting, but uh, certainly, you know, Pizarro's and any number of artists. Uh, Why did that Pizarro set of the Four Seasons, uh, it sold, but it didn't sell particularly well? Is it just, you know, again, there's not a lot of Pizarro's that get bought and sold these days or, or, or high quality Pizarro's? Or is it the actual that it's a sort of group of pictures? Yeah, this one has appeared so often. You know, when you look at the uh, provenance listings, you know, it came, this is its 
fourth appearance at auction. Um, and it had been on the market privately as well. And, you know, save, uh, you know, sort of the two, uh, let's see, um, the first time it came up in 91, it was about 7 million. Then it went to uh, 9 million in 2004. It jumped way up to 14 million in 2007, which was a little bit of a mystery to everyone at the time. And less unexpected was that here it just sold on one bid. And what I can say, you know, had often been thought of this particular piece is that A, it takes up a lot of real estate. You know, as a collector, you're giving over an awful lot of space for this piece. I would say, unlike collectors of large contemporary art and the types of homes they build and live in, some of the collectors who asked me in advance about it, you know, they live in, you know, more traditional large Manhattan apartments and other places where, you know, as big and grand as they are, that's a lot of wall to give over for this. I think another factor was, you know, that some of the paintings um, were really quite wonderful standing alone, uh, whereas one or two of the other seasons less so. As an individual work, they wouldn't be so thrilling. It's a wonderful group that would have been terrific for a museum. And I think the person who bought it for something around $9 million, which was the same price it made in 2004, uh, did not overpay for it. You know, it was a value to them. But, you know, it, it's always been a picture that hadn't found a home. As you can see, it kept coming back. And, and you're saying that the 14 in 2007 was the anomaly, not so much uh, uh, an indication of sort of the market and then the market sort of pulling back for uh, uh, Pizarro's work. Yeah, yeah, I think that, I mean, great Pizarro's will still do extraordinarily well if you get a great Paris scene. Um, however, uh, you know, I would add to it, you know, uh, that generally the Pizarro market is weakened quite a lot. Um, you know, you do see examples of Pizarro's that have returned to the market and they've underperformed and made less than they did five, six, seven years ago or more. Um, one artist who really kind of leapt up amongst the impressionist periodically is Sisley. You know, it's, uh, there was that small Sisley of uh, the, uh, winter scene in Lou yep. that made a, a lot of money. They had a guaranteed bid on it at the, around the low estimate of 6 million pounds. Um, and everyone already thought that was extremely high. Um, there was one other bidder, and then the guaranteed bidder ended up being the one who, who got it at the end of the day uh, at a 6.4 hammer above the 6 million pound low estimate. Um, so in that instance, it looked like there were just two people very eager for it. But there was another Sicily in the sale that was really quite beautiful, um, a river scene, but there was absolutely no takers. They estimated it at... Uh, five million pounds and there wasn't one bid. Um, that same picture sold in 2007 for just about three million pounds or six million dollars. And I think that's just how the value would be seen today. I think they, they kind of overreached on that one. And the snow scene was just such a riveting picture. And 
in that instance, the person who provided the guaranteed bid really wanted it. They weren't speculating on making yeah. money on it. And that's a whole different topic, you know. Uh, how much money was made and who made it at the use of all these guaranteed bids? Well, it just seems that some of this has to just do with the frequency of trading and how much there is uh, available on the market, which makes it uh, harder for people to buy around the edges. Uh, it almost becomes a bit more like the old master market where, you know, the truly extraordinary things do very well, but, but the shoulders are quite narrow and the rest of the work, while very nice, just doesn't hold the same kind of value in that kind of infrequent um uh, trading. I also wanted to ask you about, there were two Berta Morisot uh, works that did quite well, uh, I suppose in part because of the collection they, they came out of. But I was also wondering if that's not part of this, you know, discovering a new artist within uh, a, uh, what was formerly a, a body of work, uh, you know, Impressionism, but n not an artist who's necessarily uh, ever traded as well or got as much attention. Uh, yes, it, that is the case. Even you know, also the uh, even the little Eva Gonzalez watercolor from that same group um, did very well. It's interesting; they were mostly portraits of women, um, and both Morisot's and the Gonzalez went well above estimates uh, by large, large margins. The Renoir portrait of the woman, while it did go above its estimate, not to the same degree, and. I would say we've been recognizing uh, an increase in the value of works by female artists. Uh, I think we've seen that in the contemporary market and in the impressionist market with regard to artists like Marisol, um, Eva Gonzalez, uh, you know, in, in um, the surrealist field, a painter like Kay Sage, the wife of Tongi, and then I'm sure others can speak much more knowledgeably about, you know, Joan Mitchell and Louise Bourgeois and the others. But I think it's another function of people looking for value within the marketplace. And even in a sector like early impressionism, which is, you know, becoming passe, which is less where new buyers go, people still will keep returning to quality. The other thing I would offer about those Morisos is they all came from this Lambrecht collection. And I think many of us, you know, work in the marketplace when we went in to see the pictures, all thought the estimates were very low, real come-ons. And uh, I think Christie's had that non-competitively, had probably just were able to stick with appraised values that had been on these pictures for years. So, you know, having such low values really fuels the competition. People really went over, went for these. There was no sort of slow bidding, you know, to start it off. That beautiful little Morisot of the woman, you know, about to uh, walk into the theater, which, you know, almost doubled its uh, estimate, was just filled with bidding right from the start, including Asian bidding, bidding from the room. I mean, I, I think there could have been six people uh, going after that one. Um, so, yeah, just... That's, it's kind of fantastic, six people bidding on uh, a, a painting by Morisot. Not really what you, you think of in an evening sa sale, and, and clearly just the place where people feel like they can get something 
you know, both interesting and, and compelling. Yeah, and I think there would have been people bidding who never had been looking for Mauricio. I mean, people just respond to beautiful pictures and, uh, you know, they, they win out in the end. It's just in the Impressionist era, in the early era, there's just fewer and fewer. So, uh, though, those three Corbusier uh, paintings that come from the estate, yeah. do you have any sort of insight to, I mean, it's like someone set a 2.8 million pound uh, price point and they pretty much all sold somewhere around there, there uh, which was the, the previous sale, I guess, six months or a, a year ago. Uh, it just it's such an infrequently traded uh, artist and to have sort of stuff released sort of direct from this one holder uh, and still there be enough uh, uh, bidders and buyers there is kind of fascinating. It was, it was. Some of these bidders and buyers were people who uh, sort of participated in uh, driving up the Corbusier prices in the last few sales. So uh, Christie's in London uh, had at least one or two others that made really terrific prices. Um, now I think. They- so this is like going back to the underbidders and say, say, saying that seeing that they, they're still serious buyers and getting the, it's not the estate, but it's effectively the estate where these paintings ca- come from to sort of, you know, produce two or three more to satisfy the five or six people out there who clearly wanted one. Yeah. And it's a, it's a virtuous cycle, you know, the good results from the last one or two only instill more confidence. I mean, I, I know somebody bidding on one of them uh, and who was an underbidder was also an underbidder uh, probably about a year ago on another Corbusier in London um, that went so high. You know, when I looked at those, Three, it was interesting because on every one of them, I think there were at least two of the same bidders throughout the whole group. There was a fellow, Nick at Christie's, who was at the desk standing next to UC. There was somebody in the room and, uh, you know, who were bidding on each one. So in that instance, you you drew at least, they drew at least two bidders who were really focused uh, on these and really just wanted one because they bid on every single piece. Yeah, but usually in a situation like that, you the first one goes for a fair amount. The, the second one, because you've taken out a bidder, <laughs> goes for a little bit less. And the third one goes for just a bit less more or for a lot less because, you know, they're, but this almost suggested from the consistency of the prices, uh, you know, with that last sale previ- prior to this one and these three, that there were more than three buyers that they, you know, had a half a dozen or more enough and, uh, you know, to, to sort of keep uh, uh, each of these uh, bidders uh, engaged until they found what they wanted. Yeah, that's true. I mean, my my notes look like there were four different bidders, possibly on each, and uh, at least three of them were consistently bidding on each one. Um, I think another thing I kind of add about these pictures and why you know they were making these uh, very good, healthy prices is, you know, at least one person, you know, who asked my opinion on it, I know is very interested in the uh, works of Leger, you know, from the 20s to the 40s. And when you think about, you know, what would it cost, um, you know, to get... To, Le- to get a similar Leger. Yeah, yeah. You know, then you'd be, you know, you could be for something that, 
you know, kind of brilliant from the, the 20s, like the, the second of the three Corbusiers, you know, which had all these mechanical elements in the composition, you know, something that good by Leger from the 20s, you know, could have been six, seven, eight million dollars. Uh, so again, just like with Morisot and a lot of other things we've pointed out, um, people are willing, you know, to go above precedence to a bit if they see works of, of quality and are going to be a little more circumspect about the middle of the road things. Thereby, that's when we saw the small cut bids in some works. And in this, uh, I think there were some jump bids at one point in the Corbusiers. Yes, that's I like I said uh, there was one or two occasions where there were clearly some impatient uh, uh bidders but uh that that was certainly rare. Even though you don't have the um underbidding information you would have had in your former life, uh what what do these sales tell you about May and or June of either what kind of work's going to come to market or what you'd almost like to see come to market? Right. Well, the one thing after all those years I know well, and they all painfully know is, you know, even with a great success, uh, you know, it's absolutely not a lock on, uh, on how you're going to make the next sale. Your success is part of your uh, challenge the next time because as, works sell well and consistently through a sale, the next round of uh, potential sellers are going to want more. You tend to be able to estimate best when people are selling in a, at a slightly weaker moment and they need to sell and they'll be more reasonable um, about the estimates. Uh, you know, I know the houses, you know, are always trying to target works that uh, they know will be appeal for underbidders, you know, so there's there's no question they're they're combing through the books for more late Picassos, maybe another Klimt, you know, they're certainly looking for the types of works that they don't see too often, like Mondrian and others that are prized. Um, so what it means is people will feel good about the market, um, but sellers might feel very uh, bold about what estimates they need. And will the houses, particularly Sotheby's, that made the better sale by really using guarantees and third-party bids to do it, you know, will they continue to be able to draw out material or meet people's demands um, with guarantees and with third parties? So I think it's going to just as much uh, be a function as how aggressive the auction houses want to be about offering guarantees in terms of building the sale as it is people's general dispositions, you know, about selling into this marketplace. Well, yeah, well, it certainly seems like they are less competing against each other in the sense that uh, Christie's has, has uh, clearly sort of changed its um, internal strategy and uh, is using guarantees in a very different way from what it used to, uh, uh, you know, much more limited uh, use of them. But that, that, doesn't seem to change the fact that you still need the guarantees to make a sale, forgetting whatever your your competitor is doing, just the landscape of the uh, owners. There, there still doesn't seem to be an enormous um, impetus to sell. You know, there's no compelling reason to have to sell unless someone can come to you and say, you know, there really is a strong market for, you know, this artist, uh, 
Kokoschka, for right. lack of a better, you know, if you've got a Morriso, we might be able to uh, really talk uh, uh, kind of thing, and then use the um, the third party guarantees as a way to, you know, get the deal done uh, and and move forward. Yeah, very very much so. Uh, you really got to coax somebody into the market if you are a, uh, you know, if they're not already identified or identified themselves as a uh, as a prospective seller. And you know, I, I again, I remember so often calling somebody up and saying, "Oh, we could double that price right now," you know. And then what the owner of the picture says is, "Okay, well." You know, you may be getting very good prices, but you're going to keep a segment of that commission. You know, so what I paid and what it might sell for again are not are not parity, and I'm going to have to pay a lot of capital gains, particularly the Americans. You know, so when you call someone and say your five million dollar picture is now eight, you know they they look at that three million dollars, less a little commission, less taxes, and it kind of becomes a little less compelling. So. Well, I, you you make a great point. Even with the to all this talk of things doubling from ten years ago, uh, in absolute terms, a three million dollar or five million dollar picture doubling with all of the taxes and everything else that go, goes uh, through it doesn't end up with enough return to make it, uh, a, you know, a real reason to sell unless you had a use for that money and. You know, we're we're not very good right now at coming up with uses for the money unless you, you can say to someone there's some new category to get into. There's some new opportunity to to cycle towards uh, with their buying, uh, you know, uh, uh, that that will make some sense and uh, really gather momentum. Yes, as we both agreed, sometimes just doubling your money over six, seven, eight years doesn't really end up netting the seller a whole lot because there are a lot of high transaction fees. And it's also very dependent on, you know, when you bought it. You know, when I, again, when I think back to the Klimt, you know, that was bought by the uh, seller back in 94 um, for, I think I wrote down 3.7 million pounds. And so coming to that person with a guarantee, you know, that I think was nearing, well over 35 million pounds or perhaps just add it and then seeing it make, you know, over 40 million pounds, you know, well, a 10 times profit, I think, becomes more compelling. Compound annual growth rate. I, I don't know. Maybe Steve Cohen or somebody might have done better with your 3.7 million pounds, but a lot of people would have done worse. And, uh, you know, so in that instance, I think for people who have held pictures, I know a lot of people I helped who bought works after the Japanese withdrawal in the 1990 crash. So they bought things from 91 to 97 when this gentleman bought the Klimt, who were really getting terrific, terrific works against less competition, against a narrower, narrower population of buyers from a more limited number of countries and regions of the world. And now they find themselves holding on to paintings that are a much larger portion of their net worth than they ever anticipated when they bought them. You know, so people who bought quite a while ago, all of a sudden they find themselves sitting with art collections that are 50, 60 percent, if not more, of their net worth. Whereas these multi-billionaires buying today, you know, they may have one or two billion dollar collections, but they may be worth 10 to 20 billion. Um, so, again, what is 
spurs selling. It's both when you bought and the impact, you know, of the resale uh, for you. And it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. But, but also what's key to that is some of the changes in taste or demand so that, you know, it wasn't obvious to sell that Klimt three to five years ago. And now is the time, as you said, you know, the, 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 the big private sales, uh, uh, creating a kind of slipstream for this work to get um, drawn into and all. And so uh, uh, it's really looking for what the conditions are that would generate, uh, you know, enough of a, a pop in the value to make it uh, an issue that someone has to consider at that moment. Right. right? No, I, look, it, it's it's so funny to have these strong sales that don't feel like they're particularly strong sales <laughs> and and to have it feel like, you know, I think the expectations on the art market you know, in this last year when everyone talked about how far 2016 pulled back puts some odd pressure. The, the numbers they're comparing it to are not average or even down years, the numbers they're comparing it to of, you know, 2014 and 2015 are peak years. It, it's, right. li- it's like looking back at 2007 and constantly saying, when are we going to get there? But in the middle of 2007, everyone was white knuckled saying, oh my God, this, you know, this can't last. It's, uh, it's terrifying. And, and so this seems to be much more of a real regular Ordinary art market with interesting pictures, but not uh, things to um, light your hair on fire about, about producing really solid uh, numbers. Yeah, it, it is. And I, I, as we were saying earlier, it, it says it's a function of a pretty tight supply. You know, I don't think the November sale numbers in New York were very uh, close to comparing to years prior. I mean, for Sotheby's, that was quite small and exempting the $80 million haystack. I don't I don't know how the Christie's total stands up, but you're right. The Sotheby's sale, you know, and the Christie's sale, they did wonderful. And, you know, I'm looking down the, the list here of the uh, top 10 lots and, you know, the vast majority, I think there's only, you know, maybe one that didn't have market exposure. Either, you know, they were at auctions uh, or they were recently, you know, uh, being explored for private sales. Um, You know, so that's, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of truly fresh material. And I'll tell you another thing that we can immediately attribute that to, there were no major estates. And I think that was the case in New York. I mean, it's really the large estates that provide the fresh material, the record-setting price material. And, um, you know, unless I'm really uh, blanking out, I think the last two seasons, I don't recall, you know, there being a really, truly major estate for a while. That's true. And on that note, I think I'll... Um, let you enjoy some of the rest of this snow day. Well, on a, on a, on a not-quite-so-blizzardy New York day, this is a lovely way to spend it. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 